1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman On this episode, Debbie talks with Mauro Porcini, the chief design officer
2: at PepsiCo When you see the customer excited about your idea, let's launch it, let's do it And it works, it works very well The interview took place at the
1: ProMax conference in front of a live online audience because of the epidemic. Debbie spoke with Mauro Porcini by video.
0: Mauro Porcini is the first chief design officer in PepsiCo's entire 121 year history. In that role, he leads innovation by design across the company's entire food and beverage portfolio. Morrow's approach to design has earned him hundreds of personal and professional accolades. He has over 800 design awards from his work at PepsiCo alone. He was designated one of Fortune magazine's 40 under 40, a Fast Company Master of Design, and one of the most 50 influential designers in America. He's also, my favorite, one of the 10 Italians that will change the world. And lastly, he was also named one of the 30 Best Dressed Men of 2015 by GQ. Moro joins me today from his home on Long Island for a very special live episode of Design Matters at the PROMAX conference, where we will talk about his childhood in Italy, his corporate design work with Philips, 3M and Pepsi, and the creation of his brand new podcast titled In Your Shoes. Moro, welcome to Design Matters. Hi Babby, what a pleasure. <laughs> oh, we've been wanting to do this for a long time and I finally got you in the hot seat.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, Marl, yes. <laughs>
0: is is it true that you were recently recognized with a knighthood by the president of the Italian Republic? <laughs>
2: It is true. That was such a, an honor, obviously, but also such a pleasure because, you know, I'm, I love my country. I love the U.S. that is hosting me today in these days, and and, and and I love, you know, the United States of America. But obviously, I profoundly, profoundly love also my country. And that kind of recognition for something that I'm doing outside of the country, by the way, is really such, a, such an honor and such a pleasure.
0: You grew up in a small town outside Milan in Italy with parents who were deeply committed to culture. I read that you had two passions growing up the world of literature and philosophy, which was influenced by your mother, and the world of art, architecture, and drawing, which was influenced by your father. What did your parents do for a living?
2: Well, my father was an architect, and then he was teaching technical drawing in high school. My mother for a reason or the other somehow was forced uh, by her parents to do finance that she hated <laughs> but she's been writing and reading and, and all her life in she always had a little book by her bed and she would write every day and then she was completely absolutely not technological she wouldn't know how to use technology still today she has those old old phones you know not tech at all but as soon as the internet was uh, was available, she created her own blog, because she had this need, this need of sharing her thoughts and her poems and her writing. And then my father was sketching and drawing. He's been doing that all his life. And so they would publish together on their blog the poems and the and the and the drawings and the and the paintings. And then over time, then they switched to to, to social media to to those platforms. But it, it's really interesting to see this. Anti-technological person that had a need so profound, so deep of sharing her thinking, that she overcome, you know, that, that roadblock, and she used a channel that she's not familiar with. I think we're seeing this happening today with COVID. Uh, so many people that never use the digital media, the, digi- the digital channels are using it for the first time either for to communicate, to connect, to share. Or to buy and purchase is something that is happening today driven by those specific needs
0: what is your first memory of being creative do you remember
2: well you know i think i don't remember the specific one you know one specific one but for sure uh, i had always this need of designing something creating something at the beginning imitating what my father was doing so he would he would experiment with all kind of techniques and there was something that i really really loved because it was somehow magical it's called pyrography i think is it, you say it like this in english in italian it's pyrographia and essentially is drawing using uh, a pen that is made of fi- i mean it's hot and so it burn the surface. And both my father and my grandfather were drawing uh, on wood. Uh, and my experiment was to use the same technique, but not just on wood, also on leather. And so I would start to draw on leather. And then at certain point, I realized that I was doing something that people actually wanted. So I, I started to give it to my friends. And then after a while, I realized that I could even sell it. You know? And, and there was the, the entrepreneur. You know, like, <laughs> yes, exactly. It, I, I, that's really one of my very first memory of connecting my love for drawing and creating with some form of business sense.
0: I love that they were uh, created sort of at the same time. It makes a lot of sense. Um, initially, I wanted to pursue- actually
2: oh, no, Debbie, no, Actually, Debbie, I, I just realized something that, you know, while I was uh, talking with you, that. So I was somehow inspired by my parents on the creativity, right, both in, in the world of art and in the world of writing and philosophy. But then there were things that uh, I did that were the opposite of what my parents would do. For instance, this business sense, if you want, my parents had zero business sense, but nothing at all. And actually, even the idea of making money for instance, or fame of all those things were something they didn't like too much. They because they were afraid they will take people away from, you know, a stable life and good values and, and, and the right way. So when they started to, you know, to make some money and uh, in life, they, I remember my mother really concerned at a certain point, then she realized that, you know, I kept being the good son that I was before and, and now she's, you know, totally uh, um, in peace. But at the beginning, she was like, Oh, my God, you know, he's not gonna lose his way so this this aspect is interesting you know your parents either inspire you by you know you imitate what they do or sometimes you want to do something that eventually was a gap or was different than what they did because you are trying to form your own identity you are trying to be yourself in a way or the other another another area that is very interesting i think my mother is super shy my father even more my father doesn't really my father just Yeah, they are the opposite than me. And and they just my father just expressed himself literally through art every day. Uh, my mother is shy with others, but but I remember when I was a a kid, she that she will always celebrate people able to be on a stage and talk to other people and share ideas and, and drive people with emotions, with passions and with thoughts. And so somehow, for me, that idea was a me. I wanted to be that. You know, my mother was; she wanted to be that, but she was not. And so that's another area she where she, to do you know, it I for tried her. to fill a gap. Yeah, somehow probably there yeah. was that component as well. And she's very proud now. Like we'll talk. Oh, on I stage. can only
0: imagine.
2: <laughs> Initially, you wanted to pursue architecture. Why? Well, because I didn't know that design existed. And then realizing today that many people, even today, have no clue what design is. I think all of us, for instance, I'm, I'm really happy of the fact that these new digital platforms give us the possibility as designers to share what we do with the world. The idea, for instance, of your podcast and Many many years later, you know, I came. I I've been imitating you, and I created my own podcast as well. Is also about you know sharing, sharing with as many people as possible. So I had no clue design existed. Actually, it didn't existed in Italy, and this is a is a paradox because obviously we have many renowned designers, but all, the vast majority of those designers were either architects or engineers or or, or people anyway that didn't study formally in a university design and and the first university of design was actually created i think what was 1993 um, in polytechnic of milano before there was not a university level a college level um, education for designers so i i decided to study architecture and then a friend of mine in i was at high school with me one day calls me and is like oh you know that there is this new thing it's called disegno industriale already the name they decided to translate the word design in Italian but in Italian we use the word design so that was a big branding mistake because many people wouldn't understand what that means I I was thinking it was the design of industrial machines but I was also (laughs) in a situation you know my parents didn't have a lot of money I, I, I really needed to work after I would get my degree and so my passions were literature on one side and then art on the other and literature my parents were like we don't know if you're gonna you're gonna find an easy job in this country in that field so architecture is a little bit more concrete Uh, and then this design industriale we're like well maybe it's closer to the industry is new so maybe there are more opportunities and if i don't like it on the second year i can switch to architecture And then I, I did the test. I, I, I got really, I mean, I was, I, I did very well in the test. I started and and in a few months I realized that it was my dream. I mean, I was like, oh my God, I didn't know that they will, there there is an education like this, there is a school like this. I didn't know that they even, they're going to pay me to do this. I will do it for free. It's so fun. (laughs) So right now I want to tell the world about this beautiful, beautiful profession that is (laughs) designed. Let's scream it to the world.
0: You graduated in 1994 from the Liceo Scientifico Galileo Ferraris and went on to get your master's degree from the Politecnico di Milano. Uh, you also studied at the National College of Art and Design in Dublin. At that point, did you think you wanted to be an industrial designer or did you at that point, had you already started to consider the possibility of a multidisciplinary design career?
2: Well, I, I had no clue back then. Uh, so I didn't have that kind of awareness. Uh, but what I what was driving me was the idea of understanding people their needs, their wants and their dreams and creating solutions. Already back then, uh, polytechnic was very advanced, you know, you would study experience design strategy applied to design. So already back then, we will design uh products but also brands already experiences, services, entire strategies. Uh, so without realizing the value of having that multidisciplinary approach, somehow we were already doing that. And I think what what school gave me was that ability to think, to focus on the human beings, to focus to focus on their emotions or what drives them on their rationality. And, and 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 again and their, their emotions and try to uh understand how to solve their needs uh, no matter what is the media no matter what is the solution and and so it became somehow easy later on when i started to to work in the industry to realize that uh, the solution uh, to a human uh, to a human being need uh, for a company as big as 3m or pepsico couldn't be just a product couldn't be just a piece of packaging, couldn't be just branding. It needed to be holistic, you know, multidisciplinary uh, by definition.
0: You, after you graduated, you freelanced for two years before joining Philips design. And while you were in school, you'd met Stefano Morzano, who was head of design at Phillips. And even at that point elected him as your mentor. You've said that he changed
2: your life. How so? Well, uh, Stefano, first of all, I call him my virtual mentor, because he was not aware to be my mentor. You know, he was my mentor. Oh, <laughs> and, and, he was
0: <laughs> a magical thinking I mean mentor.
2: Is, <laughs> uh, but, but look, this, this, I think is a very interesting idea today in the world we live in, because many times people tell me, well, I live in a little village in the, you know, in, in the middle of nowhere in India or in Japan or in Brazil or even in the United States and I don't have access to certain people and well I was living in a little village in Italy you know the little Varese I was not living in Milan I was living in Varese and back then what happened is that I was 18 uh, and I was I remember I was in a on a bus uh, going home and a friend of mine once again these friends of mine friends are precious (laughs) you know a friend of mine calls me and she's like you know there is stefano marzano here at our house stefano was living back then in uh, in holland uh, where the a quarter of Philips was and he was the friend of the father of this friend of mine so she calls me because randomly by coincidence few weeks earlier we talked about design and she told me oh the friend of my father is stefano marzano a famous designer and i knew about him and we started to talk so long story short she calls me i am in this bus and 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 she's like, come and for a coffee after lunch. And there's so much going on that day. I needed to go to do my soccer practice, and I couldn't miss. You know, I was I was practicing soccer semi-professional. You couldn't miss one training. So so many important things. But what what did I do? I dropped everything and I went sliding doors, literally sliding doors. So I went and I was really excited by, you know, I met him and I got really excited by, you know, his way of thinking, his passion, his vision and many other things. So back then I was fresh a study of philosophy in high school. And I remember all these philosophers that would write to each other. Usually there was, you know, the, the older philosopher and the, disciple, or the, the student that would write. and much of what we learn, what we study today of philosophy is the writing, that exchange between the student and the professor. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do the same with Stefano Marzano. So I wrote him a couple of letters. Obviously, Stefano, you know, very busy man. He never answered to me. But I, I wouldn't miss an occasion where he would come uh, to Italy for a conference to be there and listen to him. Uh, but he did something a couple of years later that was really, really important he took two books that he published with Philips, and he decided to send them to me i still have them here today in this house and he wrote me the, the books were in english i didn't speak a word of english because i had to study french i studied french in in italy they decide for you back then what you study and 20 percent of italians were forced to study French. So I I didn't speak a word of English. And he wrote me something like you really need to learn English if you ever want to do something, you know, in life. And so I, I give you this book in English instead of in Italian so that you can practice. Now today, it seems obvious. Back then, it was not that obvious. I could have had a brilliant career in Italy without speaking a word of English back then. So I, I received this. I'm like, wow, I really need to do it. And my parents, you know, we never traveled, we never left Italy once. So they they wouldn't push me to study English, I needed somebody outside of the family circle to give me that push. So I decided to renounce to a scholarship that I want to go to Paris the year later, and then I waited, I apply again, and I won again a new scholarship, thank God, (laughs) to go to Dublin. So at 24 years, when I was 24 years old, I learned English for 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 the first time and, and by the way i didn't go to study english i went to study design so I, I had to do all the exams in a language that was not my language so not easy wow. getting completely out of my comfort zone uh, when i was there i didn't have the money to 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 be there you know to to enjoy the place and and, and my, the the school was paid my parents were giving me the money for the apartment but anything else i didn't have a penny I didn't speak the language so i couldn't work as a waiter in a restaurant or so i found a job uh, cleaning dishes in the um, cafeteria of the school and i remember you know i'm writing a book right now and that story is fresh to my mind because i just wrote about this (laughs) and i was there cleaning my dishes and i was totally fine i actually was very happy because they would pay me so much money so much more than anything i could earn in italy with other kinds of jobs, even as a designer. So I was really, really happy. And I remember one day somebody coming there, some of the students of the school and see me washing dishes there. And they started to laugh and they started to make fun of me. And that hurt me so much, so much. And But what hurt me the most was the realization that I didn't see it coming. Because for me it was perfectly fine to wash dishes, earn the money, to then enjoy, you know, that, that experience and everything. Yeah. And and so after that I, I realised something important that often we live in life with so many blind spots. We don't see things that other people eventually can see. And and that's why we need to be always, always completely open to listen to others, to understand the perspective of, of others, to absorb, you know, anything that is surrounding you. That's so, so important. And that's why, for instance, we talk a lot recently, or in general about diversity, diversity before anything else, before all the needs and responsibilities that we have, you know, to, to help, uh, communities that somehow have suffered, have been neglected in a variety of different ways. But be, even before that, diversity is so priceless and precious for anybody doing innovation or design, or any anybody in life in general. Because simply when you have somebody by you, they look at things with a different perspective, by definition, because that person has a different background. Well, it will help you seeing all the different perspectives. And the more people diverse you have around you, the more diverse, you know, different perspectives you will gain. And by combining through dialogue and respect, the different uh, perspectives, you also have the possibility to build new perspectives that are unique and different and they can really drive innovation in general, in the business world, in society, but also in your life. And also that can help you protecting yourself, defending yourself, like in this specific moment, you know, giving you awareness about things that you wouldn't see because you have your perspective and you need the perspective of others to broaden your perspective. Anyway, as usual, I've been diverging,
0: <laughs> oh, no, it's wonderful. but it's wonderful. yes, <laughs> at that point in your life, you also met Claudio Cocchetto. Uh He's one of the most famous music producers in Europe. You've referred to him as the Jay-Z of Italy. And you've said that Claudio's vision was that every single aspect of a project that he worked on had to have infinite value. And this is a philosophy that
2: stayed with you. How so? Yeah, look, uh, it's interesting because Claudio was a guy from the street. He was very visceral. Uh, You know, he was not very articulated in the way he was describing what he was doing. So for instance, he never used once ever the word innovation, but he was one of the most innovative person I ever met in my life. Innovation was part of what, who he was. So anytime he would see something, would approach something, he 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 had, he had this need, visceral need to do things, to do something that nobody ever did before. So from the little project all the way to changing the world, it was always, always driven by this need of, of creating something that uh, nobody ever did before. And and this is a mindset, it doesn't require more effort, it's just a way of thinking. So the, the way it really helped me, I always mention Claudio as, as my second biggest mentor, because together with Stefano are the two that really, you know, gave me something early on in my, in my life, you know, he gave me that, that kind of mindset of, once again, any project that I receive, any brief, even my jobs, you know, when they gave me the job in PepsiCo in 3M, anything, I always try to understand how to do that thing whatever it is, a job or a project, anything, in a different way, in a new way, in ways that nobody ever did before. And, and there is a technique to do that, that actually is a technique used by the philosoph- philosophers for thousands of years. It's very simple. You always need to ask why. And, and when you have the first answer, you ask why again, and why again, and why again, and why again, until you arrive to the primary cause of why somebody is asking you something. You know uh, as an example if they ask me to design a bridge many designers will design an amazing bridge a beautiful bridge a very functional bridge but if you ask why maybe you find out that you don't need a bridge you know you need to move people from a to b maybe you find out that you don't even need to know, to move people from a to b they can stay in a they don't need to go but if they do maybe they don't need a bridge maybe a more efficient way is to invent the helicopter imagining that it didn't exist before or something that nobody ever thought of you know is is for inventing the car where everybody when everybody was used to the horses they were perfectly fine with the horses so it's that idea of always always trying to really deeply understand what people need so for instance when they gave me the job in Trian or in pepsico i i didn't Listen to the brief. I didn't listen to the job description that they gave me. I tried to really understand what the company needed from design. And in both situations, I found out that they did much more than what they were actually asking me. They and, and so I've been working to build that awareness first, and then uh, to drive that kind of uh, value uh, over the years the last thing you know that i want to mention that i think is very interesting the why technique is the technique of the philosophers but if you think is also what happened when you talk with a child they always ask you why and why and why how many people interacting with a child are like you know what i never thought about this let me let me check why because i actually have no clue so it's uh it's really human nature the philosophers at the end of the day do that they go back to really try to understand and find the primary causes of our own existence and the kid in this journey of you know forming their, their identity they are in that process they are trying to understand who they are why they exist why the things surrounding them are in the way they are and this is what we lose over the years you know over the years we get so used to what we're to what surround us that we stop asking why we stop even looking at things we pass in front of something every day without even looking at what we have in front of us you know as a designer uh, for instance thinking just about patterns shapes colors nature is so full so dense of beauty that is unbelievable that we never stop looking at you know I love you know a few years actually many years ago I bought a macro macro lens for my camera or if you don't like cameras you can use just the lens so go out in your garden and start to look at the colors of the ants for instance we all think they're black no they are bluish you know metallic blue or they have different colors actually reddish the spiders the spiders that we are so afraid of the colors of the spiders, when you start to look at the, with a ma- macro, even the one that look brown from far away, the colors are amazing. The patterns, the movement, the movement of a worm is so elegant. Would you ever say that a worm is elegant? But if you look at it, you know, it, it's so elegant the way they move. So again, inspiration can be found anywhere, but it's all about the way you look at things. And that idea of looking at the world with the eyes of a child with a wonder, uh, is is really a magic formula, it really works. Always asking why.
0: Absolutely, I I can't help but be reminded of something that Pablo Picasso said, that by the time he was 15, he knew how to paint like a master, but it took him his whole life to be able to paint like a child. We lose that innocence and that freedom. Um, Linda Berry writes about that a lot as well, how to get back to that instinctual, need and instinct to, um,
2: to draw. Um, you and Claudio well, uh, well, about found that. It... Yeah. Sorry, I keep interrupting. That's you. okay. No, no,
0: not at all. It's, <laughs> not you know, very these, these, uh, remote interviews are a little bit, uh, challenging and, you know, especially when two people like us
2: want to just keep talking about things. <laughs> well, uh quickly, you know, talking about another sliding door, I, I remember I was in high school the last year and the director of the dean of the school, um, he gave the possibility to do some lessons in the afternoon, some lectures in the afternoon, they were totally optional. But you know, I, I always had this, first for knowledge right so i was like i want to go you know and they went and i remember that's when i met that theory of the little child for the first time in an author that is an italian author his name is uh, pascoli he's a poet from the the beginning of last century and he will talk about the fanciullino that is a very very old italian word that nobody uses in italian anymore uh, to describe exactly that kind of attitude and and why i'm mentioning this because once again i did something that was out of my comfort zone i really didn't want to go in the afternoon to do these things but i was curious I, I was i wanted to learn i wanted to know things and so i went and i learned something that stayed with me for the rest of my life That really you know helped me now another thing to remember is that well i learned that thing but God knows how many hours I wasted doing this kind of things. So this idea well, of getting out of your comfort zone is not very efficient, you know, but is but that little thing that you learn from time to time is worth all the other efforts that make everything absolutely uh, worthwhile. So what was this thing
0: that you realized? What, what did
2: you learn? Well, I mean, this idea of, of, of preserving that ability to look at the world like a child, know it was the first time that i met that theory in a formal way from in this case from a poet then it's not something you know many other people in the world uh, over the centuries have been talking about this but i i I did it there i'm sure that i would have met you know that idea years later anyway Um, but but it happened to me very early on, and I really cherished that from the very beginning, so, you know, that idea of the, that curiosity and asking why and everything uh, from the very beginning. I, I realized that it was very powerful, very important. That is a gift.
0: Um, you and Claudio founded a design studio. You titled, you called it Wise Mad. But in 2002, you were recruited by 3M to join an Italian team piloted by the Executive Vice President of Consumer Business Worldwide. You were just 27 years old. You commissioned Pininfarina, the design firm known for its work with Ferrari, to design a line of video projectors. And this resulted in a cutting-edge, space-age binoculars Um, It doubled the product's annual sales. It earned 3M its first major design awards. How were you able, so soon uh, in entering the organization, to be able to get 3M to take such big design risks at the time, right off the bat?
2: you know that nobody ever asked me something like this is the first time and i did many interviews that actually give me the possibility to tell a very interesting story uh, good. Good, I, good, good. <laughs> the so uh, what happened is that cm invented the overhead projectors so the all the overhead projectors that many of us were yep. using 3 awesome. i invented that and and at a certain point they were changing and they needed to Redesign redesigned completely the business. You started to use the multimedia projectors. And so they had a series of partnerships with a series of companies in Japan, but they were really struggling. It was really, you know, a difficult moment for that specific business. So what I'm trying to say is that I, I met the business in a moment of crisis. And that was point number one. Point number two, the leader of the business was somebody at the end of his career. And so he had nothing to lose. He just wanted to have fun and take risks. And so the combination of these two things uh, were really magical because the guy was like, you know what, the business is in crisis. I'm gonna try, if I don't succeed, I'm gonna retire anyway, let's do it. And so I'm telling this and we did it and we succeed. I'm telling this story because to do innovation is Damn difficult It's so so difficult, especially in big corporations, because anything you do may have an impact of millions or hundreds of millions or sometimes billions of dollars on on your company. And so it is not easy. And you need a series of factors, a series of things that happen to make to create the right conditions for innovation. So once again, the, a moment of crisis of a moment of major change is always a good moment to innovate. That's a message I've been sharing a lot in this period with COVID, for instance, uh, the, you know, this moment is a unique opportunity to relook at everything we do, you know, as a society, as companies, as brands and businesses, and try to do things differently. It is really a unique opportunity. But in general, uh, w- when you are in a crisis, imagine, you know, even as human beings. Uh, you have a job. Uh, if you are happy, uh, probably you're not going to change that job. But if you're unhappy, you're in a crisis, you don't like your your the brand you work for the company, your boss, or you're in a difficult situation, probably you're going to take the risk of changing because again, you want to better your situation. And if you don't, you may actually die or or be in an even worse situation so uh, the crisis moment is actually an opportunity the second thing is finding people that can be what I call the co-conspirators so i've Mm -hmm. been always hunting both in 3m in pepsico for people that could partner with us to change things to drive a different kind of approach to anything we will do and the co-conspirators have specific kind of characteristics uh, among them is is they need to be in the right position to take that kind of risk to be able to take that risk to have the credibility eventually to take that kind of risk uh, so when i joined pepsico for instance we map with hr the co-conspirators inside the organization and we started to work with them to build what i call the proof points so to land something in market that somehow is generating value for the company it doesn't need to be perfect it needs to be good enough to generate some form of value for the organization if you do then other people yes and other people will be like oh we want to be part of it and so you start to build more proof points and then you start to grow uh, in that way inside inside the organization and then creating value uh, for the business in general
0: you talk about how methodologies like six sigma are all about reducing risk but they're not really effective for innovation because innovation by definition is risky but at the very base of innovation and entrepreneurship is risk so how do you manage that dichotomy in a corporate environment where you always have to have a return on investment on any initiative um, that innovation to be able to do that is risky, but then Six Sigma is all about reducing risk.
2: Yeah, this is such an important question because uh, immediately make you understand that if you are in charge of driving, designing innovation in a company, your job is not just the one of working on those projects that they give you, or the projects you may identify, your meta project, the biggest project is to design the right conditions. Processes, culture, and business model for this company to do innovation. So, in this specific case, uh, it's very important to uh, let the company understand how to manage the portfolio in a way uh, that gives you the possibility to take risk in certain areas of the portfolio, in some products, in some brands, and eventually reduce the risk in other areas. So, first of all, is portfolio management. The second one is the way you test these ideas. So, for instance, if you are a multinational corporation, you may decide to take some risk in what you do as a brand, but maybe you do it in a control environment. You could do it just with a customer. You could do it in a specific region of the world where the risk is not very high because the business is not a big. Uh, you could do it um, eventually in, a, in another form or shape. It could be a special edition of a packaging. It could be an event where in reality you're not changing the product or the brand, but you're experimenting. I've been using a lot of our platform of communications in this way. You know, I, I come, before joining PepsiCo, I was working in 3M, so a tech-driven company, The most of the investments were in technology and innovation. I go to PepsiCo, that is a brand-driven company, it's a marketing-driven company, so huge investments in the brands. And so I will go to these events where Uh, these experiences that company was building where we were investing millions and millions of dollars to to build these activations and with my innovation background I was like oh my god I mean we're putting so much money in something that is just about communicating the brand how can we leverage that money in a more efficient way to also Try new things, experiment, and and so I, I, I convinced the company early on to use events like Super Bowl or Milan Design Week or the UEFA Champions League final to try things, to try a new approach to experiences with the world of cola, and we invented the Cola House uh, to uh, create different kind of experiences with sodas in generals and we build this. Uh, Experience that we call bubbles that then we sold to Disney, we sold to Hershey Park, to Marriott, to a variety of different customers. So every time doing something with a clear ROI in communication. I mean, we're doing something that was a communication event, but in reality, most of the times we were experimenting, and it's a very interesting experiment because essentially give you the possibility to talk with consumers, with customers, with the media, with influencers, with many different people that will give you different kind of feedback. You collect different kind of data and these are all insights to nurture your innovation pipeline it's also interesting because they will be confidence and this is a keyword confidence in the organization on trying things that eventually you didn't you know you you were not really comfortable with so how many times i'm sure you know too many people this happened you are in a company you have great ideas because usually ideas no, you know this company is don't have a lack of ideas they have tons of ideas the problem is to take that idea to market because you have so many different roadblocks it's difficult it's risky and so the company essentially lack inner confidence the leaders of the company lack the confidence of taking that kind of risk that's why for instance many of these companies invest millions and millions of dollars in consumer research and in a variety of different tools and methodologies to reduce the risk that they have but the reality is that at the end of the day, because innovation is risky by definition, you need a form of personal confidence as a leader and that, and therefore as an organization to take anyway that kind of risk. And so the ability that we have as designers to prototype, to create stuff, put it in the end of people, in a variety of different ways, behind the scenes, but also eventually through platforms of communication in Super Bowl, in mm-hmm. Milan Design Week, and you put in the end of people and people react in a positive way. They give you feedback, they interact with you, you tweak your ideas, you evolve your ideas, you progress your ideas. All of that on top of everything is also building confidence in the organization. When you see the customer excited about your idea, at, the, at a certain point you're like, you know what, maybe it's worth to try, let's launch it, let's do it. And, and, yeah. and it works, it works very well.
0: I, I define confidence in the corporate world as the successful repetition of any endeavor. So if someone knows that you have the ability to succeed at something in the way that you're doing it, the more likely to let you do it again. You, in 2010, you moved from Italy to St. Paul, Minnesota to take over as the chief design officer of 3M. In 2012, you were recruited to PepsiCo as the company's first ever chief design officer but almost any organization, Mauro, tends to reject a new culture. I know that um, when you were hired, the CEO, Indra Nui, was asking you, uh, was expecting you to come in and change the culture at Pepsi, a company that is very large, very political, um, lots of different uh, parts of the company that have different ways of running. What was the first thing you did at Pepsi to try to gain that credibility
2: was finding those co-conspirators uh with the uh, being aware that i needed to find them in the countries in the regions i needed to find people that had control on brands and budgets and resources to make things happen so for instance something interesting i i I started in the global organization and right away i had three people under me i mean i i had a team that was already there working on artwork production and execution uh, of nine people and then i hired three additional people to work more on strategy and, and really take you know design to the next level inside the organization and 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 of these three people i decided to gift one of them to the United States beverage business. Now, this is a business with billions of dollars of budget and thousands of people under. And I had three people and I gave one to them. And I told them, look, this person is going to just work on your projects. And, and this pissed off by the way, a lot of people in other parts of the organization, but I knew that it was the right thing to do. I, because I came from the same kind of journey in 3M, a journey where these companies that somehow are decentralized try to go global and then they go to the other extreme and you need always to find the right balance but uh, long story short i decided to you know to push the global strategy but in alliance with a co-conspirator in the local organization and with and and with two of these uh, uh, people inside the u.s business we brought to market very quickly two proof points. One was the redesign of Pepsi. And the other one was the design of this uh, family of fontans that we call Spire, that are digital fontans where you can customize your drinks. Uh, they, they have been really powerful, because essentially, many people realize that very quickly in a very efficient way, but very high, with very high quality, we have been able to lend solutions that were building value for the organization. And so once we did that, it was easier to, uh, to drive the rest of the organization to to invest in the same way. And the other thing that I did, that I think is very important for anybody that uh, is starting a journey, you know, a similar journey in any other company, I decided to expose my CEO, in Indranui, to other companies that were doing design in the right way. Uh, and and obviously I went to the companies that were really close to me that I knew very well. So and and full credit to Ingranui, she decided to do it because many other people actually wouldn't do it. So we went to uh, Seoul in Korea to to meet the CEO of Samsung and spend an entire day focusing on how they were driving design in Samsung. We did the same with Philips. We did the same with 3M. So imagine I went to my own. Old company, and I did something like this. And, and then we went to J. Uh, back then, Chris Sacker was the, the head of design of J. Uh, and for me, J was very important because they had a design center in Manhattan. And I wanted to convince Indra to invest in building a design center in Manhattan. Uh, and Chris gave, you know, we did this meeting, and then at the end of the meeting, he gave me a meeting room. And so in the meeting room of JJ, in the design center of my CDO friend. I presented a plan to Indranui for investing in design and building a design center in Manhattan and and, and hiring uh, about 20 people to start um, in in the city. Uh, And I I love to mention this story also because it shows how important is the partnerships against uh, all of us, all design leaders. We are not many, you know, design is a nascent discipline in this new approach. It's been there forever, in this new approach it's kind of nascent you know this chief design officer positions in companies or or a variety of different design agencies are playing a very different role in, in collaboration with with companies big and small the role of designing startup so i think we really really need to work together and be united to drive this new approach to innovation to brand building inside these organizations as a community we need to be united and sometimes we are not we need to be united you Same
0: now run an organization with over 200 designers and strategists reporting through to you. Um, you mentioned um, that you pissed some people off initially. How did you manage to hold on to your sense of what was right and necessary while knowing that People might be angry with you. I think that so many people in the design business are people pleasers. You had to move forward at a time where you knew very tangibly that people were pissed. How did you, how did you
2: keep your center intact? Look, I so first of all, when when a company tries to build something new, many CEOs know that it's going to be really, really difficult. And so what they do often is they tell that person that they hire in any field, I saw this happening in new ventures in marketing, finance, they tell these people this person, look, I'm going to protect you, you you are here to disrupt to piss people off, you know, to so they tell you that and they saw so many times this kind of situations to miserably fail because you know yes they protect you for a while but you can't last in this way when you create a new culture you need to integrate the new culture within the culture of the company now obviously you need to drive change and you will piss off somebody but you need to do it i think always showing that you are starting from a positive intent. That you are a loving person, that you are a good person, that you're not doing it for ego or for power or but you're doing it for the company. And you do that with a clear communication strategy. First of all, with sincerity and authenticity, you need to believe in it. Because if you don't sooner or later, people will feel it. But if you do, then in everything you do within the company, but also in the way you communicate outside of the company, across any kind of platform, people will feel it, they will start to see it. I, you know, I really do not believe in burning bridges. I really do not believe in creating separations, walls. I hate it, even though, you know, I hate the word hate, but just to give you the idea, you know, I I believe profoundly in creating bridges. And so one of the things I always tell myself and my teams is this, when you are in front of somebody, whoever it is, ask yourself this thing, how can I help that person to succeed? Especially the one, you know, the business leaders, for instance. How can I make that person successful? Both in the business world. So for instance, you know, you help them with the project that they have and everything, but try to understand what drives these people beyond the business world, what we'll keep them up at night, you know, what are their personal goals, you know, and and help them ach- achieving them. If you do that, leveraging your assets, you make yourself indispensable. So even with the people that eventually were peace, I always try to go back to them, give a hand and try to work together, because at the end of the day, the most of the time when people were peace were peace because they were losing control, resources, territories. So I try to go back to them and and tell them, look, I, I need, we need to do it. I mean, I need to do it. I'm going to do it no matter if you're with me or not. We need to do it. But look. If we do it together, it's a win-win situation. We can really win together. And so often many of these people came back. If they didn't, the most of the times is, is really literally because ego, losing control, losing power. Uh, so again, authenticity, positive intent, uh, and trying to, to, to drive good things, I, I think is key. Even today, look, uh, outside of the design world, we, you know, if you think about what's going on, Uh, with the political situation in our country, or what's going on with racism in our country in a variety of different ways. If you look at all these things, you know, when I see from any side, post of hate, of divisions, of separation, I lose my mind. Because we're all fighting for one thing, that is democracy, love connections uh, and 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 so we need to use those tools to drive that change and so even when i'm now going back to my companies and what i'm trying to do i want to build value for the company so i can't divide the company i can't fragment the company we need i need everybody to drive against that objective so it's a is a fine balance of pissing people off but then giving them a hand and like come on i mean we can do it together it's a win-win situation
0: I have so many more questions that I want to ask you, but we don't have an infinite amount of time. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is your new podcast in your shoes. Um, I understand you have three hundred and fifty pairs of shoes. Is that true? Uh,
2: I, I lost the count, but yeah, I have a lot. I'm not proud of it. Actually, <laughs> it's pure consumerism, but you know, uh, well, it's my weakness is, is the. <laughs>
0: Is the title of your podcast inspired by your passion for footwear
2: it is a little bit of course uh, but you know we were thinking about what could be the title uh, and 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 what i wanted to do with this podcast that you know it very well because you are one of my very good 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 guests uh, was to enter in the mind of people and by the way is the is the definition of empathy if you think about it and this you know empathy mm-hmm. is what should drive any designer any innovator uh, from greek and you know going into the soul of the other person changing perspective understanding their point of view so in english there is as in italian there is this expression of being in their shoes right so it became very it came out very natural and then i was like oh wait a second and then there is also this Passion that I have. So it was just like perfect. Uh, it, it was really me, but it was really explaining what the intent was of this podcast as well.
0: Why did you decide to create a podcast right now? What was the motivation in creating this new endeavor for yourself?
2: <laughs> well, the idea, first of all, personally, I have always this need of sharing and talking and communicating. Uh, and I think by inviting the right people you can do it through them so those people uh, usually are amplifiers of ideas that i really want the world to hear about and so in the specific case of pepsico then that is any anyway the company that is sponsoring the podcast is not my podcast is the podcast of of the company Uh, the idea was to build awareness within our organization about uh, design and what design can do So uh, I really wanted to, I'm using every platform that I have, every tool that I have to amplify that kind of awareness. The second thing that I really, really liked was the idea that the corporation could could take a point of view, could take a stand and could uh, become part of the conversation on design. It's not that obvious, you know, there is your beautiful podcast. I think there are a couple of great podcasts, you know, out there uh, and, but they are driven by individuals like you. Uh, the idea that the company can take a position and create a design podcast, I think, I hope, I hope is going to be an inspiration for many other companies to embrace design, to do things in a different way. I'm not going to mention the company, but one, you know, one time, I went again with Indra to this other company to meet the CEO of this other company and the the head of design of this other company. And then the head of design came to me after and he was like, this was great. It was great because it shows my own CEO how committed PepsiCo is. And so it's an inspiration for my own company as well. So I think the more companies are loud and vocal about the value of design, the more many other companies will play uh, we'll be inspired by that and we can together once again try to push the creation of, of a, a design culture in so many different kind of uh, realities.
0: Mara, my last question is this. You've said that one of your hopes in creating your podcast is that it could help other designers build a creative culture in their own organizations. and. For anyone that's looking to build a new creative culture in their organization, particularly as we recover from COVID, what would you recommend
2: that we do? First of all, looking at the crisis as an opportunity in a very positive way, understanding what this crisis is doing to society. focusing on what were the trends before covid and now this crisis is somehow accelerating some of these trends so for instance Mm. uh, the focus on people on human needs Uh, there is this huge investment in new technologies to collect data to be closer to what you know people need and want especially because uh, the the society was reacting so fast and changing so fast you know in in what they wanted in, in their emotional reaction that all these companies needed to understand uh, in real time what was going on and so you know uh, how technology can help us being more consumer-centric more people-centric more human-centered this is a unique opportunity for instance the world of sustainability is a is another world that is being accelerated by this crisis health and wellness i'm just mentioning few that are very relevant for our company but there are others out there so if you are building right now a new culture inside your organization, try to understand how society is changing and how design or creativity can be leveraged to help your company facing this new challenge. And also many companies are looking at this situation of crisis in a negative way. As a designer, you try to switch it, to change it in a, in a positive perspective. Try to show the company how you can really leverage this, this difficult moment to build something better and different in the future. There is something very amazing, I would say, I would use this word that PepsiCo did in the, in the past few months. It was very inspiring, even for me. Uh, at the very beginning, when the COVID crisis started, right away they built three teams from the very top of the company and then across the hierarchy of the organization the first one was all about reacting as fast as possible in a, with agility and efficiency to the to the moment of crisis the second one at the very beginning was already rethinking about our what is going to happen when we get out of the crisis and so it was out of the crisis to six months. But we had no clue when we were going to get out of the crisis. We are still today in the middle of it. So, but already in March, we had a team working on this scenario planning and everything. And then what I think is amazing was a third team from the very beginning, looking at what we're going to do in the next three years. And essentially, what was the reason of this? Was the idea was, let's look at everything this crisis is forcing us to do and with the positive speed. So, okay, if we need to do investments, for instance, in technology right now, because we need technology to help us working from home, can we do investments that are gonna really be important for the future of the company? And if we do, maybe we double down on those investments. We do even more than what we need now, because anyway, we're gonna build the future of the organization. So always this ability to to not be stuck in the present, by looking at things in perspective, getting out of the overwhelming present and understanding in perspective, how you can leverage the present to become your better self as as a company, but also as a human being. This apply also to our life. In a moment of crisis, there is a historian, his name is Tuchidi there, and he used to say, we need to study the past to understand the present and forecast the future. I think is so, so powerful, you know, understanding where we come from, uh, understanding where we are and why we're here by understanding where we come from and understanding that is it, literally putting things in perspective. You see the path, you see the journey and you know where to go and how to push, to arrive to to where you want to, you want to get.
0: Marlo, thank you for that wonderful advice. Um, I think it's really important these days to take this opportunity to really try to not only understand our motivations and and who we are in the world, but also how we want to show up in the future um, that we make together. Mauro, I want to thank you so much for... Oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead.
2: I don't want to... Yeah, ever. as usual. <laughs> uh, you know, you mentioned the situation where we are here today. I think because we are so focused on the present, often we forget the present was, is in this way for mistakes we made in the past. Correct. Understanding the past will help you understanding things that are not right today so that we can design a better future for tomorrow. For us and the generations to come is our responsibility of all of us to do it. So let's start from the past. Yes change the present to shape a better future. And
0: if not now, when? Mauro Porcini, thank you so much for bringing so much design exuberance to the world. And thank you for joining me today on this very special episode of Design Matters Live at the Chromex conference. To see more of Mauro's work, Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. To see more more of Moro's work, you can go to pepsi.com. You can follow him on LinkedIn, where he has a wonderful following. And you can also listen to his superb podcast, In Your Shoes, wherever podcasts are found. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, and we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded in non-pandemic times at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor and chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.